Let's take our Bibles this evening. First, turn to Psalm 1. First to Psalm 1. Then we're going to go to Psalm 119. 119. So you want to hold your place there as well. And that's where we're going to end up. Just enjoyed my day with you today. It's just been good to to be with the people of God. And I I love, it's not a stretch for a guy like me, but I like to be at church. I know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Um, But I love to be with God's people. I love to be uh, with God's people outside of our own church. And just to get to know uh, other churches and what the Lord is doing. And just to see that there is a true brotherhood, sisterhood between our churches and a a like-mindedness and a joy in the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. And uh, thankful for the partnership that we have together, as not only as churches, but in the seminary network. And we spoke about some this morning. And please, please, please pray for us this week as we'll be looking to the business of the, of the seminary, as Brian mentioned to you just a moment ago. One of my uh, roles with the seminary is I teach theology on occasion. And, and um, <clears throat> tonight is, is a little bit more of a theological sermon. And it's a theological nuance that I think is an important one. Um, it's a little bit of a knotty issue, but this is the Sunday night crowd, and this is where we get to untangle knotty issues. And Brian assured me that this is the sharp crowd that came back tonight. So, so, so yeah, uh, good luck, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you're here, and we're going to look at what's somewhat of a knotty issue, but it's one that I hope that will be encouraging to us and helpful. Now, if you tune out or lose me in about five seconds, let me just tell you what the main point is. God wants you to love every word that proceeds from His mouth. Okay, now you can go to sleep. And now we're gonna we're gonna explain that from the Psalms and especially Psalm 119. And we're gonna see why this is so important to God and why it's so it should be so important to us in the life of our church, but also for your spiritual health. God's concerned about your spiritual health, not just getting you in, getting you saved, but he's, he's intimately concerned with your sanctification, with your spiritual growth. The Lord loves to see you grow in Christ. He has designed everything in your life so that you will grow in Him. Do you realize that? Have, have you thought about that even recently? That everything that's happening in and around you right now, the Lord is sovereignly orchestrating for your spiritual growth. That's humbling to think about. It's amazing to think about. It's sometimes frightening to think about. But it's good to think about this. And that's what we want to look at tonight. We're talking about the law of the Lord. And we looked at Psalm 1 this morning, at least the first few verses of this. We didn't get very far, but far enough, I think, where you got the... The, the gist of, of what is going on there, Psalm 1 is a front porch to the Psalms, along with Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which we didn't look at at all, gets into the, the, the Christological focus. That is, it's anticipating that a Messiah is coming. This will be one who is a son sent from the Father, and he will give his life for his people, and he will reign without end over his people. And that's what the Psalms are about. And, and we see that set up in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. We have 
uh, a desire, uh, the Lord tells us about a desire for His Word, the law of the Lord, the written Word of God in Psalm 1. And though He doesn't unpack all of this in Psalm 2, we have there in seed form uh, a desire for the, the living Word of God, the Son of God who is sent, who will be the King over all the heavens and all the earth, the coming King. And so that is there on the front porch of the Psalms. And the rest of the Psalms expound on those two Issues. Every motif, every theme that we find in Psalm 1 and 2, we find expanded upon in the rest of the, the Psalms, the 148 Psalms that come after those first two. But there in Psalm 1, we have uh, an issue that we just kind of talked about in passing this morning, but it's what I want to return to, and this is kind of the, the thorny, knotty little theological issue here, but it's an important one. There in Psalm 1, look at it again in your Bibles, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But, notice verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Literally, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, the covenant God. And in his law, Yahweh's law, he meditates day and night. And so here we have a... An issue that's presented to us right here in Psalm 1, verse 2. Delighting in the law of the Lord. How do I do that? What does that mean? Kind of to the point here. Now, when we talk about the law of the Lord, there, there's just all kinds of ideas about that. And and uh, if if this was a theology class, I would spend the next two weeks just talking about what the law of the Lord is and trace that through the Old Testament and into the New, uh, but I, I'm assured that that's not what tonight is about, so let me give you this in about 15 seconds or so. Um, you, you have really three uses of the law in the Bible, and, and this comes up first in the Old Testament and is brought over into the New Testament. Uh, the first, and these are the three uses of the law. This is just really quick theological shorthand here, just kind of as a background to what we're going to see tonight. Uh, the first use of the law is that the law's purpose is to expose sin. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was like a tutor that led him to Christ. Uh, so it exposes sin. It tells us what sin is. It, it shows us what sin is. It, it reveals the, the ugly nature of sin. Okay, But the law doesn't save, it just reveals. It says, this is sin, according to God. So, the law exposes sin. There's a lot more we could say about that, but we need to move on. A second use of the law, and we see this all over the Old Testament, is that it was a civil guide for uh, the theocracy of Israel. The Lord gave His law through Moses to Israel so that they would walk with Him, so that they would know Him. This was not so that they would be saved. They already belonged to God, but this was so that they could live according to God, and they could walk with Him, and they would know what it meant to be God's people as a light to the nations, drawing the other nations to the Messiah. We know what they did and what they did not do, but that was the purpose of the law, or the second use of the law. And then we have a third use of the law, and we see this in the Old and the New Testament, and this is what we'll call the sanctifying use of the law. This is uh, somewhat similar to the, the civil use of the law, but this is more broad than, uh, broader than that, not just for the civil theocracy of Israel, about literally day, day in and day out laws in the nation of Israel, but this is about the, the, the spiritual sanctifying influence of God's Word in the life of the believer, both in Israel and in the church. Another way of saying this is that God's law, His Word, is a tool in His hands to shape us and to conform us to Christ. 
I often say it this way. This may have some negative connotations in your mind, but the Word of God is like sandpaper in, in the hands of the master carpenter. Uh, and he is, he is using it to, to shape us, uh, to, to form us, and to conform us according to the image of Christ. This is the, the third use of the law, the sanctifying use of God's law. And that's the broadest sense of this. Uh, so another aspect that we would say about this is that when we talk about the law in this sense, the sanctifying sense, uh, we're, we're talking about not just the law like the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, or even broader than that, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. We're talking about all the Word of God, every word that proceeds from His mouth. He uses it all to conform us and to shape us because every word of it, both at the very nuance of the letter, even down to the very point of a letter, Jesus says. Not one jot or tittle, not one yod, He says. The smallest letter of the Hebrew Bible or even one small part of uh, of uh, a letter will pass away until all is fulfilled. Jesus cares not only for the big picture and the big message, He cares down to the very letter and even the, the pointings of the letters of His Word. And so it's all important and He's using it all to shape us and form us. And so we come back, that's a little bit of background, we come back to Psalm 1, verse 2. Our delight as believers is to be in the law of the Lord. This broad Understanding of God's Word. We need to delight. He calls us to delight in His Word. What does that mean? Now, looking at Psalm 119. Turn over there. And and here, with Psalm 119 as our focus, (coughs) I want us to see a few ways in which the law of God benefits the life of the believer. All of which has its aim in our delighting in His Word. God benefits you by His Word so that you will delight in His Word. There are at least three, possibly four, distinct places in this particular psalm, Psalm 119, where the writer connects the law of God. And again, when you hear me say law of God from here forward, we're just talking about the Word of God. When the writer connects the law of God to sustaining the light or joy in the believer's life. It's, it's, uh, we, we've been joking about football today, Auburn and Alabama. And, does West Virginia have a team? I'm sorry. Yeah. But, sorry. They beat Auburn a few years ago. Got us to, we fired our coach as a result of that. Um, but we're, we can kind of jostle around about football. And then when football season rolls around, I mean, we're not counting or anything, but in 34 days, when it finally rolls around, we get really excited and we delight in that day. And people get dressed up and they get dressed up in the team colors. And some people build an entire week around that and they pack the RV and they move to the, to the town. And, uh, you know, everything is just festivities for that week. And they truly delight in their team. And here, the Lord calls us to delight in Him at all times. And a tool from His mouth to our hands is His Word, so that we can do that. So that we can know God's will, so that we can know God's character, so that we can know what God delights in. And we can pattern and conform our lives, not to our whims and wishes and 
the teams of the day or even the passing fads of the day, but conform them to his character and his will for us. The psalmist connects the law of God to sustaining delight and joy in the believer's life. So with this in in mind, I want us to see three ways that the law of God benefits the life of the believer with the aim of delighting in his word. We're going to look at this each time that the psalmist in Psalm 119 uses that word delight. We don't know who wrote Psalm 119. Uh, There's been all kinds of suggestions about that. Some say it's David. Some say it's Daniel and others. Uh, I don't know. Because uh, he doesn't tell us here. Uh, but uh, setting that aside here for a moment, we'll just say the psalmist. But here's what he is uh, very keen on. And he is keen on uh, a love for the Word of God. And he uses a number of words to depict this. At least six different words all throughout Psalm 119 to show us uh, the beauty of God's Word. We, we see this. Uh, you see it in the first stanza of Psalm 119. Uh, law, right there in verse 1, part B, who walks in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those whose ways blame us who walk in the law of the Lord. Testimonies, verse 2. Ways, verse 3. Precepts, verse 4. Statutes, verse 5. Commandments, verse 6. Judgments, verse 7. Statutes, verse 8. He calls it his word and uh, later on in verse 9 and, and verse 11 and so on. And so all of these are interchangeable synonyms for the word of God. This is just the, the, the manifold way in which God presents his word to us. And then not only does he do that, but he shows us the effects that the word of God has and, and so on. But here what we want to key in on is how the law of the Lord is to be our delight. And to ask the question, What difference does it make? In fact, let me encourage you to ask that every time you hear a sermon, every time you read God's Word, every time you study something or read some Christian book or so on, or some Amish romance novel. Not those. uh, But every time you read something of substance from God that is aimed at your sanctification, ask this question of yourself, what difference is this to make in my life? We're going to look at some of the practical ramifications of this toward the end of the evening. Well, the first here is that we see, and this will, we'll look at Psalm 119. Turn, go ahead and turn over to verse 69. It's a long psalm. We're not going to look at all of it. We're just going to kind of cherry pick a few sections of this where he keys in on his delight The first thing we see is that the law, the Word of God, distinguishes the believer. This is a, another way of saying this, this is a distinguishing mark of the true child of God. Or, loving God's Word is a distinguishing mark of the regenerate. Notice what I didn't say. Being an astute theologian is a mark of the regenerate. I didn't say that. Knowing all the Bible is a mark of the regenerate. I didn't say that either. Loving God's Word, longing for God's Word, delighting in His Word is a mark of the regenerate. The sharpest theologian you know is still growing in his love for God's Word. The most profound pastor and expositor and seminary student you might know still needs to grow in his love and delight of God's Word. Verses 69 through 72, we, we see that the law is a, a distinguishing mark of the believer. Distinguishing us from what? 
Or from whom? Distinguishing us from the unbeliever, the unregenerate. Now, there are a number of foundational marks that distinguish the believer from anyone else. And and undergirding everything, uh, we are marked by many things. We're marked by union with Christ. We're no longer of our father the devil. We now have union with Christ. We are are brought into union with Him and are given a manifold uh, number of blessings. See Ephesians chapter 1, for example. Uh, We also have an abiding faith in Christ. This is a distinguishing mark of a believer. Compared to an unbeliever, you have faith in Christ. Another is you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. An unbeliever doesn't have that. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have God. If you have the Spirit, you have God. That's a distinguishing mark of the believer. It's the ownership of God's grace upon our lives. Now, resting on that immovable foundation is a love and a delight in God's Word. All of this is, of course, foreign to the one without God. A very simple way to say this is that the unbeliever does not delight in God's Word. In fact, he hates God and His Word. He may not say it in those terms, but that's ultimately the effect. We see here the competing interests of the believer and the unbeliever, and what the psalmist does here is he sets them side by side for comparison. And this is where we pick up in our text here this evening. Psalm 119, we're going to look at verse 69. He says, the arrogant have forged a lie against me. Has anyone ever told a lie against you? Of course. Have you ever told a lie against someone else? Well, maybe. The arrogant have forged a lie. This is an unbeliever. Here in verse 69, we we see contrasting actions. On the one hand, of the arrogant unbeliever. And on the other, we have at the end of verse 69, the humbled believer submitted before the Word of God. He doesn't tell us the circumstances that have brought about this scenario. But the psalmist is evidently a man with enemies. They are described here as... The arrogant or the insolent. Whatever the case, they're they're spreading lies. They're telling gossip, slander, ridicule. Not only this, they are posting their invective on an ancient version and form of Facebook. The NAS says they have forged a lie. Or the ESV says they smear me with lies. The word literally means they have patched together. They fabricated lies. Job uses the same word to describe his unwise friends. Job 13, verse 4, You smear me with lies. You are all worthless physicians. Friendly conversation. The verb here means to plaster. Or today we would say, to put this in the... The Paul Amy paraphrase, they posted a comment online about me. That's what he's saying. They pub, they're publicly spreading lies, slanderous allegations, things that are not true. Did you see what they put on Facebook in Israel? Note now very carefully how the psalmist responds. Well, just wait till they get a load of this. He doesn't start typing. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't post a rejoinder. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't sue for defamation. He cloaks his soul in the Word. Look at the end of verse 69. They have spread lies. 
with all my heart, I will observe your precepts. They cloak their lives in lies. I need to cloak my heart with God's truth. Can I? This, this has very little to do with tonight, but let me just say pastorally speaking, because I get to leave town this week and get to throw grenades and then leave. It would benefit you just to turn the news off and just cloak your soul in the Word of God. Turn off the, the noise of this world and turn on the rich balm and sweetness of God's Word more and more. With all my heart, I observe your, your precepts. Compare this with the heart of the arrogant. Now in verse 70, he gives two antithetical parallel statements to drive home this imagery. Still talking about the arrogant liar. He says, verse 70, their heart, the unbeliever, is covered with fat. But I delight in your law. In verse 69, we we saw distinguishing actions. Now here in verse 70, we see distinguishing attitudes. Their heart is hardened. His heart is is delighting, softened by the Word of God. The unbeliever's rejection of God's Word. Listen to this, college students. When an unbeliever rejects the Word of God, it's not rational rejection. They may say things like, I have rational reasons for rejecting the Bible as the Word of God or whatever else they want to say. But it's actually not rational rejection. That's a, that's a redefinition of what is rational. Because we have to ask the question, by what standard is that rational? The unbeliever's rejection of God's Word is not rational. It's not intelligent disagreement over some interpretive idea. No, he says here, look at this, verse 70, beneath the surface, the real underlying issue for rejection of God's Word is their heart. That's the issue. That also means for us believers, don't think that you can argue someone who's obstinate against the faith into the faith. By all means, give a reason for the hope that is within you, but make sure it sounds like hope, not an argument. The picture here is graphic. Their heart is covered with fat. This makes me feel sick. The ESV says, unfeeling like fat. You know, the muscle, a muscle of, of human tissue is, is responsive, right? It contracts, it restricts, it can have blood pumping through it, and it, it can move like a heart muscle or like the muscles of an arm. But fat, <laughs> you just poke it, and it's just, right? It's kind of, kind of a blob. It's unfeeling. I read an interesting, I read all kinds of, I just told you not to listen to news, but I read all kinds of weird news. Just kind of take notes of these things. And I've read recently where London, uh, that's in Europe, by the way, London city officials found underneath the city streets, if you've ever been there, uh, hundreds of years old subways, some that are still in you, some that are not, uh, the, the, underneath the, the ground there, they found what they are calling a fatberg. 
in the Victorian sewer system under the British city. This fatberg is, this is true, is 250 yards long and weighs 143 tons. The unsavory blob is a buildup of, I hope you haven't eaten yet, congealed wet wipes, diapers, various other items and discarded fats and cooking oil. And it is everything and anything that might be flushed into the sewer. I think you get the picture, right? What is interesting is that this blob is basically has turned to concrete over the years. It's calcified. And so the only way they can get through the sewer system now is they're literally having to take in industrial equipment and chisel through this fatberg underneath the city system so that the sewers can now flow freely. Yeah, it's gross. Let that sink in for a moment. Because that's the imagery that he's using here in verse 70. It's not all that different. In fact, if you think that's gross, this is worse. Because this is not a physical buildup in the sewer system, but this is a hardening of the heart to God, and that is far worse. The impervious heart of the unbeliever is calcified, hardened to the truth of God. The unbeliever has no sensitivity to the things of God. There's no inclination to keep His Word. No concern for what He says. This fattening image here is to signify their unbelief and their indifference to God's message. But notice, he sets right side by side to that a contrast at the end of verse 70. But I, the psalmist, delight in your law. The contrast is startling. The unbeliever's heart is hard, but the child of God delights in God. God uses the obstinate opposition of those in verse 69 to develop our sanctification and drive us to delight in His Word to Himself. God's law is not the enemy of your joy. It is the focal point of your joy in Christ He says all over this psalm, God's testimonies rejoice the heart when understood from the context of a believing heart. Not one covered over, calcified, hardened with fat and and unbelief. A mark of a child of God is that he or she delights in the law of God. And delighting in the law means we are trusting what it shows us. To delight in it. We are delighting in... What it shows us. What does it show us? It shows us the character of God. It shows us how all the rich promises of God are are wonderfully displayed across the, the broad tapestry of all Scripture. So what is the catalyst that God uses to seal this truth into the hearts of His people? Okay, I'm with you so far. Distinguishing mark, unbelievers, they're hardened to the, to the truth. Believers over here, they delight in God's Word. What is it that God uses to cause us to delight in His Word where we may not have really given it much thought before? Follow the context. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. That's amazing. That is 
that's not joy in a football team. That's transcendent joy. That's joy that surpasses circumstances. That's joy that surpasses emotions and feelings. We're not anti-emotion. We're not anti-feeling. But this is a joy that is not a slave to those things. This is transcendent joy. Passionate delight amidst all the troubles that rage around him. Don't forget what he just said. He has people that are lying about him, slandering him, posting ugly things on Facebook and much worse. He says without any hesitation in verse 71, it's good for me. It's good for me. Now, how do you get to that point? I shared with you this morning some temporary light affliction from my own life, both present, both recent and longer term. And the Lord knew exactly when I needed those things and when to drop them into my life so that I can look on those things and say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He says without any hesitation, it's good for me. I've thought about that a lot in recent years. Verse 71, I have have been stuck here in verse 71 for probably hours on end at times. And I've come to this conclusion that for the psalmist to write that, that is not the conclusion of a superficial glance, but the result of a long and steadfast obedience, continually submitting himself to God's Word. That is not... You don't get to verse 71 with, I'm going to drop in and do a two-minute devotion twice a week. Nothing wrong with two-minute devotions. But this is a a long, steady obedience in the same direction over many days and years and decades. This affliction is good for me. And this shows us that delighting in God's law requires faith. Taking God at His Word. Great book. I know some of you are studying this. Kevin DeYoung. Great book on the doctrine of the Word of God. Taking God at His Word. When we rightly assess our suffering in light of God's Word, our affliction is overshadowed by the Lord's goodness. When we rightly assess our suffering in light of God's Word, our affliction is overshadowed by the Lord's goodness. It is good for me. Affliction drives away... Here's the difference. Affliction like this drives away the unbeliever but it humbles the child of God and drives us closer and closer dependence upon the Lord. I mentioned my wife this morning and her struggles and her health with colon cancer over the years. I was telling the pastor at lunch about especially the first year as she was undergoing chemotherapy treatments multiple times a week, sitting in a chair, receiving infusions into a port in her chest. And I saw people sitting in a chair right next to her and we would get to talk to nurses and doctors and people, other patients about Christ all throughout that time. One of the many unforeseen blessings in that time. But also remember people saying, if God is real, then I wouldn't be here. If God is alive, then why am I having to go through this? 
And then right next to them is my dear wife saying, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You don't, you don't get there by casual glances at God's Word. You can have great confidence that God is working in your suffering and even in the suffering of those that you love and those that you're tr- trying to minister to. Not because we have all the ponderous philosophical questions worked out. We don't and we won't. But our confidence that God uses suffering for our good is not merely experiential, it's historical. What do I mean by that? We have this confidence because we see this truth borne out in the greatest suffering that ever occurred. Think about this for a moment. We need to look no further than the cross, right? What happened on the cross? The suffering of Christ, the suffering that Christ underwent... He was under the weight of God's wrath, but yet it brought about the infinite goodness of His everlasting mercy towards sinners like us. This is suffering on a level that no one has ever known before or since. To be sure, before and since, people have been crucified on crosses. But no one before or since has experienced the full weight of God's wrath. Nor will they ever again Unless they go into eternity without this Christ. His suffering produced and brought about God's pleasure and goodness toward us while we were yet sinners. So we can say with the greatest confidence, God's purposes in suffering are always linked to the cross for the believer. Whether they be human disappointments You see this even before the cross. You see this in the lives of the patriarchs. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order, why? To bring about this present result. So to preserve many people alive. The evil workings of men, God uses for good, He says. Whether they be imprisonments, things beyond our control, shipwrecks, failing health, Persecutions, trials of many kinds. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know this, Paul says. That's convicting. Paul assumes we know this. Paul assumes we are constantly hiding this central truth in our hearts and living in light of it. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. In the end of verse 71, look at it. That I may learn your statutes. This is the purpose statement that reveals the aim of God's providential purposes in your trials. Why am I afflicted? Why does this go on? Again, we can't untie all the knots of the philosophical difficulties and all of those kind of things. If we were able to do that with perfection, you know what our names would be? God. Because we would see everything as it should be seen. But we don't, and we can't, because in case you haven't noticed, we're all sinners. Fallen vessels, cracked icons, born and made in His image, 
and yet fallen until we are glorified and redeemed fully in His presence and we see Him as He is. And so, He's given us affliction to soften our heart and to cause us to yearn for His that I may learn His statutes. I've come to this conclusion that this is not a casual lesson that we took away and never returned to. The grammar here at the end of verse 71 is given in such a way as to show us that this is to be a lifelong preoccupation of the believer's life. That I may learn your statutes and keep on learning them and keep on learning them and keep on learning them. Calvin said that Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which nothing is omitted both that is, that is both necessary and useful to know. Everything necessary and useful for you, God has already given in His Word. When I delight in God's law in the midst of trial, the lessons of His grace become etched on my conscience, my heart. Then, this informs my walk, it guards my steps, it lights my way, it comforts my heart, it rejoices my soul, it strengthens my, weak, my weakness, it deepens my knowledge of His character, it reminds me of what I so easily forget, and it ignites a greater love for His purposes for me in Christ. All of that as a result of delighting in His law, and so much more. We see this so clearly here. God will often display the truths of His goodness in the crucible of earthly pain and trial. Why? Because without those attendant means, we would be easily led to trust in ourselves and go our own way. How do we know this? Well, we can just see this in the context as well. Look back at verse 67. What happened before all of this? Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. You see the purpose here? You ever read from the Valley of Vision? Valley of Vision is a great collection of Puritan prayers and and others. There's a prayer in that. It says, "You, you show thy power by my frailty so that... The more feeble I am, the more fit to be used. For thou dost pitch a tent of grace in my weakness. Help me to rejoice in my infirmities and give thee praise to acknowledge my deficiencies before others and not be discouraged by them, that they may see thy glory more clearly. The Lord restores us, He renews us, replenishes us in our distress with His law, abiding and comforting our hearts. Our preservation in the faith is is borne along by learning what God's Word promises and then relying, learning to rely on the truth to sustain us. Job said, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Solomon says to his son, My son, do not reject 
the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So with this in mind, the psalmist shows us that the law of God has the effect of reorienting our misplaced priorities. So that verse 72, the net effect of this is the law of your mouth is better to me now than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Well, that's not really a temptation for me since I don't have any gold or silver. I'm quite poor. You're thinking, okay, that's nice for the psalmist, but what does that mean for me? I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. It seemed to be about every other week we would have a hurricane. And if you've ever been in those situations, you you know that in in a matter of moments, sometimes you have to make a quick assessment. And in a few quick moments, you you assess what you really need for the days ahead. We'll need food. We'll need water. We'll need gas for the cars, maybe a generator. Most importantly, we'll need our iPhones. Don't leave home without it. Have you stopped to consider how God uses our distress to reassemble our spiritual priorities? In those moments, we think, here are the things that I need. And and, and it's quite interesting in that, that all of those things that we thought we needed, actually we just need three or four. We could probably get by with not even, but maybe one or two. When you sit around and tabulate your net worth, the psalmist is asking us here in verse 72, does the law of God's mouth rise to the surface of your greatest asset? Affliction has forced him to learn God's law, and the result is that now it has become his most prized possession. In this way, this has been a long point. I'm sorry. But in this way, the law of God is a distinguishing mark resting upon the life of the believer. God's people will continue to delight in God's word, even in the face of varied opposition. Let me give you two more quickly. That was really a foundational point to the other two. We'll have the law of diminishing returns here. Each point will get shorter. Number two, another interesting aspect of this delight is that the law comforts the believer. Not only does it distinguish us from the unbeliever, it's a comfort to the life of the believer. Look at verse 76. Verse 76 and verse 77 are really at the heart of this particular stanza. Verse 76. Oh, may your loving kindness, the word is steadfast love, comfort me according to your word to your servant. We'll stop right there for a moment. Here in 76 and 77, we see the inextricable marriage between prayer and the Word of God. It is a prayer for deliverance rooted deep in the promises of God. According to your Word, he says there in verse 76. The picture here is the writer crying out, Please let grace, loving kindness become a comfort for me. One of the old confessions say, what is your only comfort in life and death? Shorthand that Jesus Christ, that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and that He will guide me to my eternal rest. 
What is your only comfort in this life? It is to hear God and be assured of His promises according to your word. The psalmist cries out for consolation and only God can give it. He takes up the law of God and in it he reads of the constant pledge of God's loyal love for His people. We collectively become exhausted by trials. We become depleted by constant, the constant barrage of the world and the constant war in our flesh. Do you? I do. But God is eternally, perseveringly loyal and steadfast in His love, He says. The comfort that He prays for here comes through God sustaining Him in His affliction. Verse 77. May Your compassion and mercy come to me that I may live. Why? Here's our phrase again. For Your law is my delight. He sees that His compassion toward us is merciful and patient. And the desperation of the believer is is evident here as well. That I may live. None of us can go on without the tender mercies of God, without the superintending, providential, and sovereign working of God in and through our lives. Do you realize that? Do you understand what I just said? Let me put it in the words of Jonathan Edwards as he preached the most famous sermon ever preached On these shores, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He says, what you don't realize, congregation, is that all of you right now, apart from the grace of God, are dangling right now by a spider's thread and the flames are licking at your feet and you do not even realize it. And all it would take is God to just go snip and you're gone. It is only the tender mercies of God that sustain you even now. We lose sight of that because of the loudness and the noise of everything else. Psalm says, verse 77, your law is my delight. So much more I want to say here. We'll just move on. Let me give you one more. The law sustains the believer. It comforts the believer. It sustains the believer. Look down at verse 92 and we'll finish up here. 92 and verse 93. The law of God is, is not like an unnecessary appendage that we can take or leave. The psalmist says that he would die without it. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, there's our word again, then I would have perished in my affliction. What's the difference between a believer in affliction and an unbeliever in affliction? It's that he can see God's purposes in that and that it is not God's purpose for him to perish in that, but to be sustained in that and through that to bring glory to him. In verse 92, there's an if-then sequence that is happening here. If your law, then I would have perished. He doesn't tell us how this takes place, but we see here that in some way the psalmist has been continually drinking deeply from the inexhaustible well of divine water. The law of God has been a constant delight to him. It is the divine channel of understanding God's character, his will, his ways. The law of God has been his delight, and now it is the lifeline of his soul. Do you feel that desperation? His affliction would have overwhelmed him. He would have lost sight of God's promises, all while perishing under the weight of it all. People say to my wife in her trial, I don't know how you do it. 
four small kids at the time. How, how did you do it? You know what her, her secret is? She says, I don't. I couldn't sustain myself. I couldn't just strengthen myself and muster it up. Muster up courage and all of those kind of things. The Lord sustains us through the regular means of grace. The indwelling of the Spirit. The reading, singing, praying, preaching of His Word. Fellowship of the saints by which we are constantly encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. The wonderful graces of God that He gives us in full measure and abundance. It's what sustains us. Joy in the abiding testimony of God's law has upheld the writer in his affliction. Last verse, verse 93. I will never, I will never forget your precepts. For by them you have revived me. Literally given me life. You will never forget. You will seek to remember He will do what God says. The reason is because the words of God are the words of life. We see in verse 93 that there is an an historical aspect to this. Historical meaning he is drawing on what has happened in the past. Implied in verse 93 is that he has read the word of God, right? Memorize the Word of God, shall we say. He says that earlier in Psalm 119. I've hidden your Word in my heart. I don't know what else that means other than he's hidden it in his heart and he memorized it and he knows it. He's read the Word of God. He's memorized it. He's sung them. How do we know that? Because the Psalms are songs and prayers. And he's hidden them in his heart. And now, verse 93, he is drawing down on that past deposit which is refreshing his soul in the present. So, you may not be going through anything right now, but when in that day comes when you are, you will be drawing down and drawing from the deposit that you are making right now. Hiding the Word of God in your heart. Pursuing the wonderful riches of God's grace. The law sustains us by reviving us from the slumber of the errant voices around us, from the cloud of earthly difficulties, and from the tug of our own flesh. So he can say much later on in verse 173, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Yahweh, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. May God help us. May God sustain his church. May God strengthen us in his word. What does this mean? Are you saying, pastor, that I need to read the word of God more? Is that what you're saying? Essentially, yes. Hide it in your heart. Hide it in your heart. Hide it in your life. So when this life starts to press in on your life and the voices start chirping, it is God and His Word that comes out and sustains you and brings you to delight in Him and Him to strengthen you in your affliction. Would you pray with me?